The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. She's crying and she said Sarah died last night. Well, I mean, everybody just wanted answers. Well, I went and sat in his office and that's basically when he told me they're probably going to charge me with murder. This trial ended up being essentially a battle of experts. He was always... Sleepy. He would always fall asleep at random things, which is kind of odd for a young person. They had a person on trial for murder, and they had no earthly idea of what actually happened. We go into the deliberation room, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you could just tell they thought he did it. The prosecution had three options. Just drop the whole case. They could try to reach a plea deal, or they could forge ahead for trial three. Welcome back to episode 10, our final episode of Direct Appeal season two. Last time, Ryan was convicted at his third and final trial for murder. But Ryan did an interview afterwards with Dateline, and he caught a lot of heat for this interview, Amy. There are a couple things here. I mean, first, he had a baby between trials, and I don't think that he should necessarily catch heat for that, but it just didn't, the optics didn't look good, especially with Jennifer Cruz coming in as a witness and the other women that he was speaking with. He also called Sarah's mom a liar, which just didn't bode well with with the public. In general, his demeanor just wasn't great, and he was more indignant as opposed to being sad. Let's play devil's advocate. If he is an innocent man, I would be indignant as well. Do you know how indignant I would be? You know, I I mean... Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be downright confrontational. Mm -hmm. But he also implied, I think that... He implied that there was like almost like a frame job here, which did not come across well. So I had to ask him, like, well, what was going on here? I mean, I thought the interview was fine till you know, I saw the show when it aired, and they probably spent a good hour and a half, two hours with me. And then, I mean, I, if I was going to take a guess, he only showed a couple minutes of my interview. Obviously, all the editing and whatnot, it just, I mean, it just didn't show here as, as much as it should, I guess. Apparently, from what I was told, a lot of people kind of took a little bit, or I took a little bit of flack from saying it the way I said it. I can't exactly remember exactly the words I used, but I felt like things I said, I know the things I said, I mean, I truly believe that's what happened. Pretty much damned if I do, damned if I don't with a lot of things, because that's all people are doing is judging me. From the times when I'm sitting in the courtroom to things I say, a lot of stuff, but uh, that's all, all it boils down to is, I've been judged for a number of things, and then including things I said. So the Dateline episode was not good for Ryan, but I think he brings up a good point. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Ryan's indignant, but this is the aftermath. And after the Dateline episode, Janice Hissel was the next reporter Ryan spoke to, so we wanted to know what her impressions were. Dateline had already spoken to him. And there was some, I think, special deal there. But I was the first local reporter to get an interview. And that was the first time around. And I went and met with him in prison. And then 
I didn't go and speak to Ryan again until after he was convicted in trial three. I didn't go and interview him, I believe, for years until I finally couldn't stand the unanswered questions anymore. I just felt so compelled to try my hardest to answer the questions that had been literally haunting me since this case happened. I live down the road from where all this happened. And it, the emotion just, it just overtakes me so often because I hate thinking about Sarah, only 24 years old, drowning. And I also hate thinking about Ryan, only 27 years old, having his whole life wrecked. Whether it was by his own doing or not, it's still awful. And the questions that remain about this case, I don't think they'll ever, ever stop haunting me. I just, I think about it every day. I didn't know I was going to do this. I haven't cried about this case in a long time, but it just came out. Oh, God, it's just... I, I go and I, I I visited Sarah's grave and I think it's terrible that I, I'm there visiting the grave of this woman I've never met, but I feel this connection to her. And then I go visit Ryan at prison and I feel like he sh- maybe shouldn't be there either. It's terrible that both of them ended up in those places. You shouldn't have a 24-year-old woman in a grave and you could, shouldn't have a, a guy who was 27 and now almost 40 years old, 39, whatever he is. And it's just sad. Whatever happened here, I, I'm still trying to answer some of the questions. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, it's unbelievable how much emotion there is there. I guess I she's been working on, I mean, she was at every trial, right? Yeah, Janice is deeply involved in this, but it also makes you realize that it's not just Sarah, Ryan, there are all these lives, so many lives were affected by this, mm-hmm. whether it's by Ryan's hand or whether it's not. Mm-hmm. There were so many people who were just attached and emotionally involved in this. So Janice meets with Ryan, and there were some other developments after the trial, as there always are. And a few years after Ryan's conviction, there would be another shocker, and very sad. On July 29, 2013, Ryan's mother, Jill Widmer, was found deceased at age 55. Her son, Aaron, found her. And Ryan couldn't go to the funeral. It would have cost too much for security detail. You've heard of those cases where you can actually mm-hmm. get a request. Uh, the judge yep. will allow you, but you have to pay for your own security details. So, and in a completely ironic twist, guess who did her autopsy? Let me guess, up the grove. Correct. What was her cause of death? At first, he listed it as pending, but after a couple of months, he updated it. Complications of chronic alcohol abuse. Mm, sad. Yeah, it's very sad. That's when it, we talked about all the lives that are affected by this. Also, remember Rachel Hutzel, the Warren County prosecutor that drove the state's case against Ryan? Lead prosecutor, yeah. Well, she did eventually become a judge in 2011 on the 12th District Court of Appeals, but she died of cancer in 2012 at the age of 56. Oh, geez, both so young. That's what I'm saying. Both very young and both very tragic. A lot of tragedy connected here. So what about Ryan, though? So far, he's been unsuccessful in his appeals for a fourth trial. but. Now he submitted, um, or his attorneys have submitted on his behalf, a petition for a writ of habeas corpus filed in the U.S. District Court in Cincinnati in February 2014. 
I see you. You're itching because <laughs> writ of habeas corpus is not no. something everyone knows. No. So it's it's used to bring a prisoner um, in front of the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or their detention is unlawful. Mm-hmm. If it's granted, it basically just means that you get another day in court. Mm-hmm. You're given essentially one last chance to prove that you're being subjected to unconstitutional confinement. Mm-hmm. I don't think many people know this. It's actually considered a civil action against the state who's holding the defendant in custody. It's almost like court of last resort. Not part of less resort, but it is, right? Yeah. You know, the appeals process is very complicated. It was complicated. I learned a lot in Melanie's case when we did this last season. But my takeaway is, aside from the federal system, every state has a different process. But we were lucky because Ryan's attorney, Michelle, was able to speak to us and, and kind of give us some insight as to what the process is like. When someone is convicted, they start out appealing at the state level. So um, we did file at the state district level, which is the local appellate court. We lost that. So we proceeded to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court here in Ohio does not have to accept the appeal. So what happened is they, they actually did not even accept his appeal. They did not take jurisdiction over his case. At that point, you can move to the federal district court and you can file. It's like an appeal, but it's actually kind of, in a way, a a civil suit in the federal district court called a habeas petition. So I filed a federal habeas petition on Ryan's behalf in the federal district court in the Southern District of Ohio here in Cincinnati. And we are still in that process in a way. The federal district court has two judges, a magistrate judge and then a district judge that sits over the magistrate. We're at the point where the magistrate judge has reviewed Ryan's case and recommended that the petition be dismissed. So the magistrate reviewed it and thought that there were no constitutional violations, basically. That's that's what the magistrate recommended. And when that happened, Ryan then is allowed to file objections to that and say why the magistrate is wrong. I did file two sets of objections to the federal district judge to review combined with the magistrate's recommendation for the district judge to ultimately issue an opinion. So we're now waiting on that decision from the district judge to say either whether Ryan wins his writ of habeas corpus, which would mean that all of his his conviction is overturned, or whether the district judge follows the magistrate's recommendation and dismisses the habeas petition. And that would mean we are at a point where we would have to appeal again to the federal appellate court. And this may blow your mind. Those objections that I just referenced have been pending with the federal district judge for more than four years now. It is painful and very frustrating to put it lightly. And I can't even imagine sitting in Ryan's shoes having the time just pass while you're just waiting for a decision. Wow. Four years. How is that not unconstitutional? You probably know this better than I do, but do you know offhand what the average time, like wrongful convictions, uh, the average time people spend in prison? It varies, but at least a decade. Some research goes up to like 14 years. Right. So I thought it was about 13 years. So I, I guess you could understand this, but I'm baffled by this. Why has this judge had this for four years? I asked Michelle, because this is like, uh, my mind was blown by this. My speculation over it is, I know that the courts are ridiculously bogged down, like backlogged. The pandemic made that even worse. The court 
literally shut down for a while. I mean, they were still issuing decisions, but just like everywhere else for a long chunk of time, they weren't having employees come into the courts at all either. And I know that that really sent things haywire. Ryan's case doesn't involve jurors coming together or a lot of people gathering per se. So it's frustrating that that would impact this situation because it's really the judge and the clerks and everybody sitting down at their computers basically and analyzing the issues and deciding and writing a decision. So it's it's a lot of computer work that needs to be done. But I also, my heart, I believe part of it is here in Cincinnati and really across the state and even nationwide, this case got a lot of attention, a lot of attention. And I know that the the district court wants to get it right. And I want to think that they're very carefully pouring over these issues and they want to write a decision in Ryan's favor that is appeal proof that can't be um, undone by the state. So in, in my heart, I want to believe that that's part of it too. But I, I really think that the largest part of it is the court is inundated with federal habeas petitions. Many of them are done by people that aren't represented by attorneys. And there's just tons of them. And it takes the courts a long time to sift through them. She's more optimistic than I am. And it's so sad to think of how many people are sitting in prison while these claims just sit there. I think this part is, for me, this is almost the most infuriating part. I was trying to wrap my head around it. And I I listened to what she said, but I'm really baffled and really disturbed by this. Mm-hmm. And we talk about our in our research, where would you like to reform the system? I've always talked about bail and plea bargaining. Mm-hmm. I am so focused on the appeals process now yeah, because I think it's so defunct. I think Ryan's got some good points for his appeal, like stronger than most. And so I asked her, like, what, what, what's the key points of the appeal and his challenges? Primarily, there was a, a terrible due process violation regarding, I, I call it junk science testimony. The state had an expert witness testify that he could look at the bathtub at issue and he could identify oil smudges and determine male forearm, male finger streaks, small statured person finger streaks in a downward direction. And the state used this evidence to tie it together with another witness's testimony to say that a a physical confrontation occurred. And that these smudges matched up with and were physical evidence demonstrating that. And in the closing argument, the prosecutor really tried to hammer those points home. And the reason why this is such a terrible, egregious violation of Ryan's due process rights, and he had he absolutely had an unfair trial based on this alone, notwithstanding all the other things that happened. Or there's a Supreme Court case, and it's very clear that if evidence comes in that shouldn't have, and that evidence is so prejudicial that it rises to the level of the person having an unfair trial, that conviction itself is not reliable and should not stand. And here, we actually have a lot of things in the state court, uh, appellate court decision that we lost that are actually working to our benefit in the federal habeas petition. And that is, the state appellate court admitted that that state expert's testimony was not scientifically based. Basically, that it was all anecdotal, that it was this expert eyeballing it based on his alleged experience. That's extremely problematic because there's no way for the defense to cross-examine that evidence 
there's no scientific methodology to compare this guy's internal thinking to other cases and prove or disprove him. So the fact that the state appellate court actually got that point right, they admitted this state expert, his testimony wasn't based in scientific methodology. We're, we're taking that point, which is absolutely true, and running with it in the federal habeas petition. In fact, the objections that um, we have pending, that's a very big point of it because the magistrate, when he recommended dismissing the petition, he got this point wrong as well. He initially, he wrote a recommendation saying that this expert's testimony was based on the same methodology as fingerprint comparison. Now, there are times problems with fingerprint comparisons, but that is an actual established science and there's a methodology to that. And the the magistrate judge said, well, looking at this testimony, this expert absolutely had a right to make this testimony because he was using the same methodology that he uses in his expertise on fingerprint analysis. And that's simply wrong. You look at the state court opinion and even they admitted that that was not the case. So the magistrate judge actually reviewed that objection already and had to issue another recommendation. We have other objections pending based on the second recommendation, pointing out that after the magistrate said, okay, you're, you're right. I see what you're saying about the state court opinion. There's no scientific methodology there. Instead, what Ryan needed to do was to disprove that this was reliable. And we've taken that point and run with it in our currently pending objections too, because that's not the standard set forth by the Supreme Court. So I feel actually pretty confident about this issue. I mean, I'll just say it, this this actually is a home run issue. Not to say that we're going to win because you're always digging yourself out of a hole once there's a conviction in place. But we we should win this issue because it absolutely is not scientific. And the state used it as the only unchecked physical evidence that Ryan killed Sarah. How is that not enough for an appeal? <laughs> the decision hasn't come in yet, but but I agree. I, I'm, I'm saying that should be enough. And there are other issues, but that alone. I'm sorry. Where have you heard of forearm oil smudge science? I've never, ever heard of this kind of testimony. No, it's not science at all. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we both were nodding our heads, shaking like this. This is a significant issue and, and a good one. I mean, not a good a one. A good one for a, appeal. A good one for appeal, but not, yeah, not good for trial. And that's the difference. I just want to hammer home again. Eyeballing something documenting it, explaining it, that's not scientific reliability. Experiment, testing over and over again, getting the same results. The issue becomes when the jury doesn't understand the point you just made. Absolutely. I would call this a second home run issue. And again, this when I explain this to people, it's one of those things where you say you, you can't make this stuff up. The lead detective in Ryan's case, uh, his name was Detective Braley. He was not actually qualified to be conducting this investigation. In fact, he had falsified all of his credentials to the to the township um, that was using him as the homicide investigator. 
he made up wild tales about being a military paratrooper and he had the top level experience. And it turns out um, at the beginning of all of this, he wasn't even a police officer. He, he hadn't even gone through any training. Now, ultimately, he became an actual police officer, but he didn't have nearly the expertise to be the lead detective on a homicide case. In fact, he bypassed many people within the department with many years of experience based purely on these tall tales that they bought hook, line, and sinker without investigating them. So long story short, this wasn't known to the defense before trial. The tip of the iceberg was the trial team did look into his background as they did with anybody working for the state, looking to see any weaknesses in their qualifications. And they noticed some red flags in his, what seemed like false credentials on one of his applications. And the defense tried to investigate into this and their subpoenas in the process were quashed by the trial court. The trial court did not allow this investigation to go forward. And they said it was too far flung. It wasn't to the main point of the trial. And he wasn't going to allow this side mini trial to go on about this detective. I mean, that's, it's crazy because thankfully, again, the, the defense team articulated to the trial court at that point, this is important, not because we just want to make him look stupid up on the stand, not just because we want to um, discredit the words coming out of his actual mouth on the stand, but because it impeaches the credibility of the entire investigation from day one, from what evidence was collected, what evidence wasn't collected, conversations that happened with the state pathologist. This all was tainted by this man being held up as this top qualified person. But in fact, he was not more than a person off the street doing this. And the jury didn't get to hear any of this. So this is a huge issue. You know, I was going on and on about the junk science. This is at the same level. I mean, we have this detective who conducted an investigation that can't be trusted at all. It almost speaks for itself. And Megan, he wasn't just an investigator on the case. He was the lead investigator. I agree. I think this is a major malfunction in the trial that the judge did not allow them to impeach his credibility. So after the trial ended, Lieutenant Braley was charged with civil wrongdoing. They fired him the day after the verdict. Excellent. It's excellent, but no. I know. They kept him on the payroll, it seems like. I, I surmise that they kept him on the payroll just to have him testify at that trial, and then he was done. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of it like that. I, it's unethical. Yeah. It's almost, I would say almost criminal, but it's unethical. Yes, I at agree. At the very best. And if these points weren't enough, there's more because they're also, among their arguments is that the, the bathtub, remember, the mm-hmm. illegal seizure, it wasn't yes. specified in the warrant. And they're also arguing that they should be allowed to test Sarah Widmer's DNA for a genetic disorder that might have led to her accidental drowning. We discussed that earlier as well, that there's a possibility that Sarah might have had long QT syndrome or another genetic or medical condition. But without the testing, we'll never know. So I wondered how people felt about that who were close to Sarah. If you remember in previous episodes, we interviewed one of Ryan and Sarah's mutual friends, Dana. I just wish there was more done to figure out what possibly could have caused it. I mean, the fact that we don't know what happened to her is scary. It's a scary thought for her. 
anyone, I guess you think of it. Cause I think God, that could happen to us and who knows they would even do the appropriate testing to find out what happened. You know, you think about in the medical field, like long QT, you think about narcolepsy, you think about seizure activity, what happened to her and in that family, is that something that's hereditary? And as her family, I would want to know, I would want to know, you know, is it a possibility that this is something genetic that is passed down? And, you know, like I said, I wouldn't want answers. I think we all want the answers on this one, right? Anyone who's kind of involved in this case. Yes. And I think that's justice for Sarah. Also, we talked about that in the beginning. This is about Sarah and Ryan, not just Ryan. So where does that leave Ryan if he doesn't prevail? Well, his first parole board hearing is scheduled for July 2025. I'm just thinking that if Ryan is innocent, he will probably not show remorse, though. And that will be problematic for him. Yep. I mean, many people, including myself, I think remorse should not matter. But the truth of the matter is when you're looking at parole decisions, if you don't show remorse, you're not getting paroled usually. It yeah. is. I do talk to my students about this a little mm-hmm. bit. I think the reason why remorse persists in the legal system is because it aligns with most of the theories of punishment. Well, number one, there's this false perception that remorse may actually decrease recidivism. I mean, there's mixed research at best on this, but it's mixed. not fully developed. But remorse also may lower feelings of retribution. Okay, got it. Because then the offender mm-hmm. less culpable slash deserving of punishment. Right. And then also, I think one of the biggest parts is that remorse serves the aims of restorative justice. Or restitution in yeah, some way. Yeah, because it's a way to acknowledge the victim's experiences and also encourage offender reintegration. And I wonder what he's going to do. We talked about what he'll do. That's quite the conundrum when you go in front of a parole board because they want to see remorse for you to get out. I have such a problem with this because, first of all, there's no way to tell if someone's faking remorse. So you're judging somebody's, if someone's rehabilitated by how remorseful they are when you could fake remorse. And people that are innocent don't have remorse. They have nothing to be remorseful for. I've spoken to plenty of people who have been wrongfully convicted who said they would rather die in prison Mm -hmm. than ever be remorseful for something they didn't do. I absolutely, I know at least two people who stayed in prison much longer. They yep. probably could have gotten paroled, but they could not bring themselves to admit to doing something they I didn't do. I think the parole board needs to stop putting so much weight on people being remorseful. Yes, there is a body of research that connects remorse to rehabilitation. So I don't want to undermine that fully, right. but I think it, uh, we shouldn't put so much weight on it. I mean, I completely get the philosophies. But it's still garbage. I if think. you maintain your innocence, though, how do you then go ahead and show remorse? It would be false remorse anyway. And people can show false remorse. It, it goes but either way. But for certain people, yeah. like they don't want to. I, you know what? I actually, I asked Ryan about this. because oh, he did? I, yeah, okay. I was really curious because I'm like, you maintain your innocence this whole time. You wouldn't take a plea deal, but mm-hmm. you're up for parole in just now three years. And so I asked, you know, what are you going to do when you face the parole board? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I do it do some more when I get closer, but I've done some research in the law library and I've found some civil type cases where some prisoners have filed against the parole board for using innocence claim against them. I'm not saying that I, I, I'm 100% certain something like that would work, but I do know there's some stuff to be that further on my end if I'd ever get to that point. As much as, I mean, obviously it just keeps getting closer and closer, obviously, but, you know, I still try not to think about it, and as it gets closer, try to think about it more. I'll be 44 when I see the parole board, but I'll turn 45 that, that year. 
Okay, so if Ryan gets parole, some would say he still has his life ahead of him, half of his life ahead of him. But I would argue if he's innocent, he's lost some of the best years of his life. Of course, this cuts both ways. Yeah. And we also, we don't know if he's actually going to get granted parole. He might not get out till he's 50, 55, who knows? We don't know because we don't know what he's going to do. I mean, he's researching case law whereby he wants to show, he's been a model prisoner, I know Mm -hmm. that, but you know, what's going to happen if he doesn't show remorse? Mm -hmm. He maintains his innocence. He says that he loved Sarah with all of his heart. He never would have hurt her. And he will absolutely not admit to something that he didn't do. So do we know what happened? I I asked Janice this. At the end of the day, what do you think happened to Sarah? I've reached the conclusion now that the full picture was not seen by the jurors. Because Ryan didn't testify and because of some other things, some decisions and some mistakes and I, I don't know if the things I found as I explored this case would have made a difference in the trial or not, but I sure do think it's really weird and really suspicious and strange that Sarah Widmer had all of these signs and symptoms that can't be explained by what we know. And we don't know what happened to Sarah because the tests were never done. And that really should upset every taxpayer in this area that those tests were not done and that the the police did not even bother to talk to Ryan Widmer before he was charged. Would that have changed the whole course of the case if they had heard his explanation? Maybe not. Maybe they would not have believed him. But it, it seemed like from everything that I have learned, they made up their mind right there that he did this without looking any further. And that is not a good investigation. I don't care what anyone says. That is not a good investigation. Anyone who knows anything about criminal investigations will tell you, you do not develop your hypothesis right there and then look for facts that fit that. You look for facts and then you come up with your hypothesis. That is not what happened in this case. And that is why I am still so passionate about this case and why I think people should care about this, because it shows the problems in the justice system that can happen. It shows how holes in an investigation can possibly lead to the wrong thing happening. Do I know whether Ryan Widmer is 100% innocent or not? No, I do not know that. But what I do know is I have so many questions about what really happened to Sarah I, I still don't, I struggle to figure out how he was convicted based on the evidence that was available to the jurors, because I know more about the case than the jurors did. And I would have had a hard time convicting him because of the questions. So I think Janice, besides the fact that she summed up a lot of areas nicely, but mm-hmm. she also talked about what we consider the purpose of direct appeal. Right. Right. We're not necessarily we don't know if Ryan is innocent or guilty. But what we do know is there are many issues in this case. And I think what we do on direct appeal is highlight those issues and make people think twice about what they thought was the truth. And the criminal justice system. You're saying the issues Mm -hmm. are like for me. I mean, we're getting to the end here and I know we're at like final conclusion time or we're we're kind of approaching it. But I'm seeing significant problems Mm -hmm. in the uh, the trials uh, of Ryan Whitmer, to be perfectly honest. In the end of this question, we either have Ryan is guilty, 
he could be guilty as well with procedural errors and due process violations, Mm -hmm. or he's not guilty. And if he's not guilty, this is likely a no crime conviction, correct? Yeah. And a lot of people don't know about these kind of wrongful convictions. These are wrongful convictions where a crime never even occurred. Remember Patricia Stallings? She was convicted of killing her child, and it turns out there was an undiagnosed medical condition. Or in the case of Joanne Parks. Oh, right. She was convicted of arson and killing her children, but it turns out it was an accidental fire. That's a no-crime wrongful conviction. We've covered both these cases on women in crime, and through that research, we met Jessica Henry author and leading expert in the area of no crime wrongful convictions. So Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened is a book that looks at no crime wrongful convictions. And I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of wrongful convictions in general, where an actual crime occurs and an innocent person is wrongly convicted of a crime committed by someone else. But what I learned in the course of teaching about wrongful convictions is that nearly one third or actually over one third of all people who have been exonerated, who've been found legally innocent of crimes they were convicted of, one third were convicted of crimes that never happened, literally never happened. Uh, Let me give you an example. Someone, um, a suicide is mislabeled a homicide or a child dies of a natural death, but somehow it's mislabeled a murder. Or maybe we're talking about cases where the police plant evidence and literally manufacture crimes from whole cloths, or someone makes a false allegation that becomes a wrongful conviction. But under all of these scenarios, innocent people are convicted of crimes that did not occur. And that is the subject of my book and my research. I find the possibility of this phenomenon very interesting. How can our system get it so wrong? And this begs the question, how often are these situations happening? And why don't we hear about these no-crime cases as much? That's one of the great unknowns about wrongful convictions in general and no-crime cases in particular. We don't know how many innocent people are convicted of crimes that they didn't commit or the crimes that never happened. It's one of those unknown and unknowable things. The best estimates that we have are about 4% of all convictions are wrongful. And if that's true, we have 2.2 million people incarcerated in our criminal justice system at any given time. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who have been wrongly convicted. We know that there's only very few exonerations since 1989 which is the when the National Registry of Exonerations started keeping track of all the exonerations that they know about, right? So all known exonerations are captured in the National Registry of Exonerations. Since 1989, there's been 2,836. That's not hundreds of thousands, right? That's a very, very small fraction of people who were exonerated, legally cleared of any wrongdoing. Very, very small. I think the number of people who've been wrongly convicted is larger by a magnitude that we can't even begin to fathom. And I think it's important to shine a light on these sort of separate no crime cases because they're so outrageous. Maybe, maybe we can sort of understand how when a crime occurs, a wrong person could get swept up and get accused of something that was done by someone else. And there are reasons for that. And maybe we can understand that kind of tragedy occurring. But there is almost no way to get your head around the idea that our government, through the prosecutor, through the police, literally arrests 
investigates, spends countless dollars and hours prosecuting and then convicting and then incarcerating people, sometimes for decades, for crimes that just didn't happen. It's a complete waste of resources. It's a complete devastation to human lives. Innocent people, their families, their communities are destroyed for nothing, for literally nothing. You and I probably both know the answer, but I wanted to know Jessica's opinion. When she's talking about the police and prosecution in these no-crime cases, why do they push so hard? We have this criminal legal system that's really not functioning the way that it should. But once something is mislabeled as a crime, then the system kicks in to do what it does best, which is to find the perpetrator and build the case and get the evidence. And so all sorts of psychological theories can help us understand, for instance, cognitive biases or the idea that we're going to hone in on a a crime having happened, a suspect being the person that committed that crime. And then we're going to maximize and overemphasize any evidence that might corroborate that theory and minimize or downplay or outright ignore any evidence that would suggest the contrary. Um, And once people dig in, they start to see things through a very narrow lens. We call that tunnel vision. And tunnel vision is incredibly powerful. So that's what happens. And and we also have to take a big step back here, right? In the easy cases, in the easy cases where there is actually a guilty defendant, there's typically a plea bargain, right? Where they're convinced a crime occurred and where they're convinced they've got the right suspect, they'll often play a little bit fast and loose with the evidence because they come to believe that the end of conviction will justify the means, whatever it takes. And remember, prosecutors kind of have to work overtime in these no-crime cases because the evidence really isn't there. Now, I'm curious if Jessica had any opinion on Ryan's case in particular. Well, so that's where we went next. There were just some things that are interesting, right? So the lead detective on the case himself wound up being investigated for misconduct and resigned before he could be fired. That's always an important thing to think about because when you are building a case that is based on evidence that's not accurate or reliable, a lot of times you've got police chicanery going on, right? Police are working overtime to find evidence that might help prove their case. And so the fact that there was a a detective involved who seems to have engaged in some kind of misconduct, that's a red flag. We see official misconduct in many no-crime cases. And so that was one thing that certainly stood out to me. Also, you know, the fact that it came down to a battle of the experts is just indicative that this was a really problematic case from the get-go. And there was an absence of all other kind of motives that you might typically see, whether it was having an affair, there was no evidence of an affair, whether there were financial difficulties, there were no evidence of financial difficulties, there was no life insurance to be gained. There really was nothing that would explain the otherwise inexplicable scenario that could have occurred. Sarah didn't have defensive wounds on her body, but she did have bruises on her head and her neck and on her upper chest. And all of those types of bruising could really have been consistent with life-saving efforts by the folks that arrived or even by Ryan himself. And there are a couple of cases that came to mind when I read about Um, Ryan's case that reminded me of that. So Sabrina Butler was a 17-year-old young woman. She was a mother, but really no more than a child herself. And one day the unthinkable happened. She found her young son 
lifeless. And a neighbor called 911 while Sabrina very clumsily attempted to do CPR. Um, when the child was brought into the emergency room, um, they he was pronounced dead, but they noticed the bruising on his chest cavity and they decided that he had been abused and had been murdered by her. And she wound up being one of the, the only women on Mississippi's death row for five years before she was exonerated when it was revealed that her child had in fact died from something natural, a natural illness. And another case that sort of is similar is Neil Robbins. He was um, convicted of murder. And there again were bruises that were on the alleged victim's body that were later identified to have come from CPR. And he served 17 years in prison for a murder that never happened. And in both of those cases, evidence of bruising that was used to prove murder was, in fact, from life-saving efforts. If someone died of a natural death, you have to work hard to find evidence of a murder. And that may well be what we see in the Ryan Widmer case. The evidence was, was extremely thin. Um, jurors struggled. It took them three trials to actually come up with a conviction that could stick. And some of the evidence produced is questionable. The thing I find particularly interesting about possible drowning, no crime wrongful conviction cases, is most, especially DNA exonerations, most involve faulty forensic science, but none have dealt directly with the science of drowning. So it's really an underdeveloped area. Yes. And I study wrongful conviction cases, and one case came to mind. You heard of Wendell Lindsay? No. So Wendell Lindsay is currently serving a life sentence in Texas. He was convicted of murdering his 10-year-old daughter. And they say that he held her underwater and drowned her. And he was convicted of that. But basically what happened is he took his two young daughters fishing and the oldest, one of the daughters got out of the boat to go do something. And while he was in the boat alone with his older, his 10-year-old daughter, she fell overboard. He says that he jumped in to try to save her. He was unsuccessful and his daughter drowned. And so everyone thought it was a tragic accident at first, but very quickly it turns into a homicide investigation and then a murder charge. And really, it was all about dubious claims about the science of drowning. It's also the idea that people can't accept that she would have fallen overboard and her father couldn't just jump in immediately and save her. So there, there was a lot of questions, but there was a lot of self-professed experts in the mechanics of drowning, right? Oh. And they were unequivocal in backing the contention that the only way his daughter could have drowned was if she was forcibly held underwater. However, you need to look into this case because I do not actually believe that he committed this crime. The reason I find this interesting is because the investigation, similar to Ryan's, mm -hmm. it was built on the foundation of flawed assumptions. Right. Right. There were witnesses with serious credibility issues, mm -hmm. like his estranged ex-wife. There were some people saying that there were money issues. He had a criminal history. There was all these things that, once again, confirmation bias and just look into it. Oh, I certainly will. One of the questions that just popped in my mind, which is, side note, is why would he kill one daughter and not the other? I know that well, does some happen. Say, it's interesting because some say, well, he favored one daughter mm, and okay. not the other. So something else that was super interesting in this case is that rather than try CPR, he was in shock and didn't do anything. And similar to in Ryan's case, mm -hmm. he had taken a CPR class years prior Mm -hmm. So this is the whole thing, how people act in traumatic situations that came right. under fire. Right. It was 
Oh, we also talked about it. You took a CPR class. I did, but you I... You can't do CPR. No, no, not at all. I, I discount that one, to be honest, but I'm sure there's other merits to this one, and yeah. I will look into that. Yeah. So at this point, Amy, we've come to the conclusion, as much investigating we can do, and it's time for us to tell the audience what our conclusions are. <laughs> So I'm just going to start with the procedural question first, and that would be, did Ryan get a fair trial? And I'm going to say, no way. The lead investigator was corrupt. I mean, he lied. He falsified his credentials. He was allowed to testify without the jury knowing that he was a documented liar and he didn't even have the credentials he claimed to have as lead investigator. That should be enough for an appeal. Yeah, well, you remember his appellate attorney said that she had what she called some home run issues. Mm -hmm. Every appeal is not like um, sometimes you're reaching, right? Like, But she had what she called two clear issues, and this is one of them. The second one, and the second reason I say no, was the bathtub forearm evidence. How they said that there was indentations that looked like a male's forearm and a motion going in one direction. This is clearly what we would call junk science, but not even junk science because there's no science here. And bringing the bathtub into court when it was never legally allowed to be confiscated is also a violation. And further, I just want to repeat that a juror who stated that the reason he or she voted to convict was because he just couldn't believe a healthy 24-year-old could die of natural causes does not understand the standard for conviction in a criminal case. And it really indicates the need for jury education, much better jury education. Yep. So I'm sorry, your opinion on procedural, did he get a fair trial based on this, do you think? Are we talking about trial one, two, or three? Because <laughs> I'd say none of them. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes, thank you. Sorry, and that's a good, I'm, I'm saying trial as if there was one trial. Oh my goodness. That's why I don't, I don't actually think any of his trials were fair, all for different reasons. Okay. They each had their own issues. So, I mean, you would agree that he was probably entitled to a fair trial, which he didn't receive in any of the three cases. And even if we don't believe the trial was fair, though, Amy, that doesn't mean we think that Ryan's innocent. So let's turn our opinions to guilt or innocent next, because we start off with kind of two tasks here. Mm -hmm. And before we do that, I just want to briefly sum up the main evidence against Ryan to refresh our memories, but also to refresh the listeners' mm -hmm. memories. So the main pieces of evidence, one, the 911 call. This was used as evidence. What do you think about the 911 call being used as evidence? I don't think it has ev any evidentiary value whatsoever. Agreed, 100%. None. I, I think in most cases, we see that the 911 call really has no place in the. I think it has no place in the trial unless there's something of value. I just don't yeah, see it Yeah, they're clearly indicative, like someone didn't hang up and then they admitted, oh, <laughs> yeah, I killed exactly. someone. Or Yeah, I don't think that they have any real place either at trial unless there's something tangible to be taken from them. The first responder testimony about Sarah being dry. I have such an issue with the terminology and the subjectivity, um, as we talked about dry versus damp versus wet. Right. I don't, I don't put that much stock in that piece of evidence. What about you? No, I don't at all. Because I, we don't know anything. Remember, for me, it was not knowing the room temperature, not knowing how long she was in the tub for. Like, There's too many variable mm -hmm. factors here that were unknown. It doesn't mm -hmm. strike me as really indicative one yep. way or the other. And there was conflicting testimony about how sure. dry she was. Yep. Okay, next we have the medical findings by the state that Sarah could not have drowned from falling asleep in the tub. I think there's too much reasonable doubt. I don't think enough tests were run. I don't think we know enough about potential pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you could 
ever say that it's not possible. I don't think you can either. But for me, that was a stronger piece of evidence than the others because it does seem unlikely. Well, because the other ones were so weak. It doesn't take much to be stronger. <laughs> I think that's true. And I think you have to look at the totality of the circumstances, which was something Marianne Hamill, their pathologist, mm-hmm. said. So when you place it in the totality, if there was also a situation where Ryan was having an affair or there was insurance money, they were fighting. And then you put that coupled together yes. with this unlikelihood, it would m- be more impactful for me. Yes, because then you're building a stronger circumstantial case. Correct. All right, next, the injuries sustained by Sarah specifically to her neck. Now, if you recall, so there were injuries on one side of her neck that were from the IV that were very clear, very clearly explainable, mm-hmm. I should say. But there was a bruise on the other side of her neck that was unexplained and that Marianne pointed out she had a problem with as well. That was her one, I think, point of concern. As you mentioned, for the last piece of evidence, this one to me, I guess, would be the strongest. Mm -hmm. The piece of evidence that maybe I would question the most, Mm -hmm. however, still doesn't tell us that Ryan is responsible for Sarah's death. I mean, we talked about how we both have bruising all the time. The neck is a a kind of a strange spot, but I also... And fresh bruising. But I also think if you're frantically trying to save someone's life, Mm -hmm. it's possible that her neck got hit when she was getting taken out of the tub at some point. Mm -hmm. Or maybe when she was getting turned over, it got hit on some unknown object that was on the floor. Like, I don't, I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's what do you, yeah. Yeah. I think for me also, I'm with Marianne. I don't love it, but is it even indicative of Ryan doing anything? I don't, I don't know what it indicates. It just... It's an unexplainable bruise. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a stronger piece of evidence in supporting his guilt, though, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, How about the testimony by Jennifer Crew that Ryan admitted to killing Sarah? That to me, that means nothing. Okay, Um, And that's because you think she's an unreliable witness. I think she is an unreliable witness. And I think I think there are too many contradictions between her testimony and facts. Yeah. And we have to remember that she didn't come forward until the third. There's a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say her credibility for me was really troubling Mm -hmm. to her documented criminal history and her documented lying and the timing. And if you recall, he spoke to another woman that night who said that. That's what I mean by her. Her statements contradict the facts because we have the facts of the timing of other calls. Right. We do. Correct. So. okay, So, yeah, I would probably discount Jennifer Cruz testimony Mm -hmm. as well as not being strong. That's the major evidence against Ryan. So at the end of the day. I I don't think there's enough evidence. I don't see any motive. If I had to conclude, I would go with undetermined if I was Mm -hmm. with a a pathologist. But I think that it's really, really possible and probable that Sarah had an underlying condition. And I think that the genetic testing will reveal that. And in my opinion, this is a no crime conviction. 100% agree. I, I believe that Ryan is an innocent man. Wow. Yeah. We got to the end and we think he's truly innocent. And I, I mean, we do. It's a little different than first season. Well, for it wasn't you, as clear cut for me. You know, I will say this, even though I came to a different conclusion than you in season one, it was not as clear cut. And my conclusion wasn't nearly as overwhelming as I feel in this instance, where I 100 percent believe that Ryan is an innocent man. Mm-hmm. I do as well. So now we're talking about possibly two injustices here. No mm-hmm. crime, wrongful conviction that could, I think, have been prevented. I think there's a tragedy here that we don't know what happened to Sarah. Yeah. I sincerely hope that the genetic material is tested. And if Ryan's innocent, I really hope that he's exonerated. I do, too. And even if he gets out, if even if he decides that it's the best choice for him to show remorse just as a means to get out on parole, I don't judge him for that. Right. I, even if he gets out, though, I hope that he can clear his name and I hope Sarah's family can get justice. And plus, I think it would be helpful if 
Sarah has an unknown genetic condition, it would be helpful for her family to have that information. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, Amy, now that we've given our conclusions on this case, I'd like to share some thoughts from Ryan's cousin, Sean. I think as I grow older, I get more pessimistic and I have less and less faith in the justice system. I mean, they had they had the they had the uh, basically the Michael Jordan of forensic pathology. Warner Spitz basically sat there and said that that it was impossible for you to rule this a homicide. The guy who if there's one person on planet Earth who would know it would be that guy. And he basically said it. and No one believed him. So, I mean, what, what's it going to take to get him exonerated? I mean, it's like the same thing, like they're trying to get her DNA to test it for long QT syndrome, which is the number one cause of drowning deaths of women in her age group. And even they, the judge won't do it because they said that even if that comes back that she had long QT syndrome, that doesn't mean he didn't kill her. I mean, come on. How can you possibly exonerate it completely? I mean, how, how can you do it? I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. My perception going into this whole thing of how the justice system worked and the amount of evidence you had to prove to 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 prove somebody guilty, that all, all that faith was basically just destroyed, torn apart. After the first trial, after I got over the initial shock and like absolute complete disaster of, I mean, you talk about devastation, like, I mean. I, the first trial, I'm like, oh, this is a sham. And I had such trust in the, of the department. So when they said guilty, I, I mean, I was like hysterical. My, I was in my office. I was crying so hard, like through the walls, like my coworkers were like coming to check on me and stuff. To, I mean, I was just hysterical. But after I got through that, then, you know, start to think about it, it's like it's scary. Like it's scary for Americans. His life was taken away like that for, for something completely beyond his control. Like he they literally stole his life from him. And there's like this type of thing you think would happen in like the Salem witch trials or like some communist country where dictators come and pull you out. This happened in America, in America, they basically put a guy in prison uh, that didn't do anything. And I say this to everybody, this happened to a college educated middle-class white kid who for a while could afford to defend himself with our family. Eventually our family ended up broken, but, but for a while we at least were able to scrap some stuff together to, to put up a fight. Imagine how many poor and disenfranchised people in this country just get completely railroaded and steamrolled by stuff like this. The way they manipulated him, the way they tried to make him look bad. I mean, if it happened to him, I can't imagine how many innocent people are in prison. Right. Now. I can't even begin to imagine, but I know this, there's several and several more than people think. I think between his conclusion and Jessica's conclusion, I think that's the take home here, right? It's like, I love that he brought up the fact that I, Ryan had the resources. He had family. He had people who are shelling out money for him. He had the best forensic pathologist there was. And look where he is. So as Sean said, that it's a scary thought to think about all the piece of, people who do not have resources right now who are sitting in prison for crime that never even happened. I agree. Okay, well, that is our final conclusions and we are at the end of this journey. We will, of course, stay in touch with Ryan and we will keep you apprised of any updates. And for those of you who might be interested in supporting Ryan, you can join the free Ryan Widmer Facebook group. You can sign the change.org petition to release DNA testing in this case, or you can donate to Ryan Widmer's GoFundMe. We'll have links in our show notes. 
And if you have any information that might help us shed some more light on this case, please feel free to contact us through the website or email tips at directappealpodcast.com. We thank you so much for taking this journey with us on Direct Appeal Season 2. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.